All right. Well, let's get rolling. We're going to continue on with what we talked about last week a little bit. I want to just recap briefly. Remember talking about the new man. We know, and I'm not going to uh, rehash all of this, but I, it's very important that we understand that the new man is created in Christ, in his image. You get that when you are born again. How does one get born again? Because John has a, or, or excuse me, in the book of John, Jesus has a long conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, explaining that you must be born again. And the culture we live in today, that could not, that does not even like bear witness with them in any capacity. To be a Christian, you either do good things, go to church. In other words, to be a Christian means it's, it, it has more to do with what you've done, do, or who you are than it has anything to do with what Christ did in the country that we live in today. That's where it's gone. We're going to talk about that in a little more depth here momentarily. But the problem that we have here today is that we have a, a faith with no conviction. And the reason we have that is because it's not grounded in anything, i.e. the Word of God. We have to have our beliefs grounded into something. Our ideas are always good. I shouldn't say they're always good, but they're fine. But if they are not grounded in fact, it doesn't matter, right? So there's all of this stuff. So we have to be born again. First and all, Jesus said it. It's been reiterated all through the New Testament, so there's no way around it. But once that happens, we're transformed into this new man, and with that comes a responsibility. And so as we begin to look at these different things, that new man, one of the responsibilities of the new man is we have authority on this earth, spiritually speaking. We have a spiritual authority. I don't have authority over you. You don't have authority over me. We don't have authority over other people. We have authority over the principalities, the powers, the strongholds, all of that stuff. The problem we have is we've got a church that doesn't recognize the authority. And if they recognize it, they don't know what to do with it. And so we began to look at what that is and what we do with it and how we exercise it a little bit. Ultimately, we looked at who Satan was, what he looked like, all of that. And then we pushed into this more spiritual side of things of what we do. And we have to understand which and how the enemy attacks us. And that's what we got into last week. So we're going to pick up here in Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 10. We're going to read verse 10 and 11. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, when it says put on the whole armor of God, what does that mean? It means you're not born with it. It means you don't get it through osmosis. You have to intentionally put this thing on. That also implies that you could take it off. And we do. In other words, we let our guard down. We do it all the time. We get to a level of complacency in our spiritual walk where we begin to just let that armor sit off on the side. I don't need this. I've got it. I can handle this on my own. And so that is when the enemy comes in. And so we put on the whole armor of God. But why do we do that? So that we can be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, right? So what does that mean? That the attacks are going to come. We have to put it on. It's, Paul is saying here, this is going to happen. So you need to do this. That way you can stand against it. Because if you don't have on the armor, can you stand against it? No. And we'll look more in depth into what that armor is here in a couple of weeks. But the bottom line here is, is that we need to be prepared for this. But what on earth is a while? And that's what we looked at last week. You see, when we get into the Greek, it gives more meaning. Remember I told you last week that this word wild is the Greek word methodos. It comes from two words compounded together. Meta, which means with, and odos, which means a road. So it's with a road. We get our English word method from it. In other words, that it is the way in which we do things. Everybody has their methods, of their method to their madness, the method of which they operate. 
So our method, our word method, isn't strong enough to really convey what's going on here because methodos can be translated as cunning, crafty, subtle, full of trickery. These are some of the words that are used here, not just in the Bible, but this word used in other Greek writings. I mean, guys, these weren't words that were just put around for the Bible. And so when this is used here plainly, it means that the enemy comes in in one way. And he does it through cunning speak, craftiness, subtleness, full of trickery. But what's the one way that he does this? Remember what we looked at. The one way that he attacks us is in our minds. We have to understand that. Do you know that God gave you your mind? I'm not talking about your brain. I'm talking your mind. We call that our soul. Our minds, will, and emotions. All together. Do you know that your emotions can wreak havoc on you? You ever met somebody who's super emotional? Cries at the drop of a hat? Right? Those are people that you don't go to movies with. Because they're going to cry at every ending. Every one of them. Even the happy ones. They're, they cry when they're happy. They cry when they're sad. Sometimes they cry when they're hungry. I mean, it's just, they cry all the time. They're uber emotional. Or, let's go to the other side. You ever met somebody with a real short fuse? Maybe it's some of you in here. But like, just a, a hairline trigger, it takes nothing to set them off. I worked for a guy. Okay? This is the most bizarre thing. When I graduated high school... This guy had a roofing company. He'd been doing it for years. He was in his 70s and could still out shingle just about anybody out there. And he didn't use nail guns. He used the old hatchets and stuff, if you know what I'm talking about. And he was so nice. We went to church together. So nice. You know, I was kind of excited to go to work for him. Um, needed a job right out of high school until we got ready to go to school and all that stuff. And so he'd be talking. And the first day on the job, I show up at a roof. He's already there. He's up there, and he says, hey, Chris, how you doing? And I said, I'm good. And he said, did you get you some breakfast? The other guys went to the little cafe down the road. I said, yeah, I'm good. He's like, oh, okay. And, you know, just talking. Everything's real nice. And then we got up there on the roof, and it was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He became a lunatic. Absolutely crazy. Everything angered him. He was angry at the shingles. He was angry at the wood. He was angry at the people that were putting the shingles on, me and everybody else. Yell, cuss, just, just mad. And then we'd break for lunch. And we're sitting there. It was just super nice. He even bought our lunch. We're talking. We're talking about the things of God. And I'm like, is this happening right now? Like, I don't know what to do with this. And then we went back to work. And he started yelling and screaming. We had a church work day. That man got mad at the vacuum and was just angrily vacuuming the carpet. And he just had this thing where he had this hairline trigger. When he started working, you needed to know what he was thinking before he thought it and do what he was thinking you should be doing at all times. I mean, it was, it was a rough go. So emotions play a big part here. Does the enemy attack our emotions? Oh my goodness, yes. We get so worked up over dumb stuff. And you're thinking, oh, well, yeah, okay, this is just, just kind of nonsense and things like that. You know, maybe this is just kind of self-help stuff. We need to understand what Paul is conveying here. Is that he is going to come in through our minds and he is going to wreak havoc on our emotions. Look, when we get into 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4 and 5, we talk about this, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Who is that talking about here? It's talking about the devil. Coming from the, the word diabolos, and that's got a meaning there. 
When you put this with Methodos, it's one who continually strikes and strikes again. He's beating against the walls of people's minds over and over until he finally breaks through and he penetrates their thought process. You see, when we look at this, I want to show you this. Let's look at this. We got that back up. There. Leave that there. Now look what this says here. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, Okay. What does that mean? That means that it has nothing to do with our physical nature. That means the war that we are fighting is not against flesh and blood, but against something else. So we don't go through it in natural means. You guys remember me talking about how uh, back in the, the early 80, or late 80s and the early 90s, how these guys were renting airplanes and renting floors on skyscrapers to get up to the heavenly places so that they could do spiritual battle and they would put on battle fatigues. I really wish more of you guys were around back then for this stuff. It was funny. Okay, They would march in sequence. Some of them would march up the stairs. They called themselves the army of the Lord. Right? They did not carry weapons. Thank God for that. Right? But, but it's like, what are you doing? You are taking a spiritual concept and trying to rationalize it through some natural means. But the weapons that we use are not carnal. But what are they? They are mighty in God. Right? They're mighty in God and they're for a purpose. What is that purpose? They're going to pull down strongholds, they're going to cast down arguments, and they're going to get rid of every high thing that exalts itself against what? The knowledge of God. So when a stronghold comes against the knowledge of God, and an argument comes against the knowledge of God, and whatever high thing might be out there that's going to exalt itself, it's against the knowledge of God. And where does the knowledge of God reign? It's in your mind. You see, no matter how you do it, and no matter how you turn this, when one comes to faith in God, it starts with an idea, I believe what I've heard. In Hebrews, when it talks about faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of God, talking about the nation of Israel, how will they hear about the Messiah and put their faith in Him if they don't hear it? So this idea starts up here. Some people have come to God in supernatural ways. Right? They've maybe, maybe they were miraculously healed. They're like, God must be real. You hear about these stories all the time. Blind eyes being opened, people getting out of wheelchairs, all of this stuff. They're like, this God must be real. But what's happened? The miracle led to a thought up here that I am believing what I'm seeing. Only God could do this. It's always up here. It's in the mind. So where does the enemy attack? He attacks in the mind. Because if he can get you thinking wrong, he can get you acting wrong. You will convince yourself that you are better off than what you are. You will convince yourself that you can handle things better than what you can. He will puff you up. You see, ideas have consequences. Ideas have crept into the church. Where should our ideas come from? The Word. We bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That doesn't mean some thoughts, right? That doesn't mean just the bad thoughts. That means every thought. Are there thoughts that are good, but not necessarily godly? Absolutely. We can do good things, but that doesn't mean we're always doing the right thing. You see, we have a thought life problem, and the enemy plays on that. How many people have you met in your life that have just been like, their mind just plays games with them? And I'm not talking some sort of psychosis. I am talking like, no matter what they do, they can't get out of their own way. Ideas have consequences. Now, let's go back here a little bit. 
Because over the last few weeks, I've showed you guys several different um, things. Some of these different teachers that are out there right now. The Rob Bells, the Carlton Pearson, all of these guys that are out there. It all started with a thought. That guy from over in Sweden, what happened? He began to think about the ecclesiology of the church and how it came to be. And instead of going to the Word, he went to another source. He was led astray and thus has left the faith. In a sense. And it happens all the time. Does that mean that it's just them and they're isolated? No. It can happen to all of us. Because ideas have consequences. Everything that we think, uh, it starts with a thought which leads to an action. All of it. These ideologies that are out there. There are consequences for the actions. And sometimes we don't see them right away, but they will come. Now, let me show you a couple pictures here. I want to show you this guy. You guys know who this is? Martin Luther. Now here's a quote from him. No, dear Christian, and have no doubts about it, that next to the devil you have no more bitter, poisonous, and determined enemy than a genuine Jew. If they do something good for you, it is not because they love you, but because they need room to live with us, so they have to do something. But their heart remains as I have said. Now leave that up there for a minute. Is that a true statement? No. Are the Jews your biggest enemy next to the devil? No. Missouri Tiger fans. I'm just kidding. I had to throw that in there. Yeah. No, what's happened? Did Martin Luther do a good thing? What happened? He was a part of the Catholic Church. He recognized that they were no longer following the Bible and had not been for centuries. And they were taught not to read the Bible. So in his examination of scriptures, realizes that he's got some issues here. Because he can no longer support this. Thus, leaving the Catholic Church, you know the story, the Reformation, the 95 Theses, nails it on the door, October 31st, here we are. He founds the Lutheran Church. The founder of the Protestant Church is what it says. Protestant meaning protest. We were protesting the mother church, saying, no, we're going to get back to the Bible. Can that statement be found in the Bible? No, it cannot. You see, he had a preconceived notion that the Jews were the cause and, and they were the ones who crucified Christ. And there are still people that hold that today. And they assume that the Jews have no part to play in God's plan here after this because the church has been born. That is a wrong thought. And where did that thought come from? It came from the enemy. Because for all time that the enemy has attempted to eradicate the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Because if he can do that, then he can thwart the plan of God. Well, that's just one. Let's look at this next one. John Calvin. There, and it's referring to the Jews, their rotten and unbending stiff nakedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly and without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Is that true? Does God love the Jewish people? Yeah. Do they need to come to the Messiah? Oh, yeah. But these were ideas. These things were prevalent pretty much since the first century. And they just got worse and worse and worse and worse. Ideas have consequences. Let's go to the next one. How about this one? This was in our country. Valuable gang of young Negroes will be sold at auction on Wednesday, the 25th. I'm not going to read the rest of it. You can read that. But the idea was, is that we have an inferior race of people that we can just own as if they are some sort of commodity. And we're traded as such. 
The, the idea that, they're, that the, these people like, were less status because of the color of their skin come from the Bible. No. Somebody comes up with this idea. Now, this went on a long time before it was the Muslims that were bringing these guys over in these, these slave ships. But this had gone on for thousands of years. But somewhere it started. Thank God we had people that started thinking right and got rid of this stuff. Now look at the next one. This is Margaret Sanger. Slavs, Latin, and Hebrew immigrants are human weeds, a dead weight of human waste. Blacks, soldiers, and Jews are a menace to the race. What race is she talking about? She's talking about the, well, ultimately the white race, but she believed in eugenics. In other words, trying to create a race of superhumans. This is the same person that Hillary Clinton said is her hero. And my goodness, there are lots of quotes out there like this. Now, she believed in setting up these abortion clinics. That's what they did. They wanted to, because if they could control the population, they could weed these people out. They would set them up in poorer neighborhoods because they were their victims, is what I'm going to call them. But here's an idea. And where did this idea come from? It didn't come from God. She wasn't a godly person. Now, let's look at this next one. This is the lizard man. Okay? Okay? This is not a joke. He, uh, he identifies as a lizard. Okay, so he tattooed himself. He had his tongue split. You can see his teeth are jagged. Um, I didn't want to show you some of the other photos. This is the best one. But because he believes that he is a lizard and happened to have been born a human, he has taken steps necessary to make himself look as such. In other words, he wants to look like how he feels. How about this one? He believes he's a tiger. So he's got, it's kind of hard to tell in the picture a little bit, but you can see he's got little spikes coming up. Those are supposed to be whiskers. You can see he's had his teeth done. He's had those things implanted. He's got the stripes tattooed on him. He identifies as a tiger. Do ideas have consequences? Oh, man, I wish I were done. Let's go to the next one. This guy identifies as a parrot. So I don't know what the little horns have to do with anything, um, and I didn't ask a question, but you can see the feathers being tattooed. Look at his ears. He had that surgically done, removed, because you know what? Parrots don't have ears. He identifies as a parrot. And so thus, because this idea is in his head, he is taking the steps necessary. And you know what, folks? This is being embraced. Let's go to the next one. This guy identifies as a six-year-old girl. I think it's in Canada. That family there is not his family. However, they have taken him in, and they treat him as a six-year-old girl. They change his diaper. They, he sleeps in a, a little bed or a crib or something. He's got dollies. He's got all of that. You guys see how messed up? I mean, our thought life is important. Where does the enemy attack? Now, this is craziness, right? I mean, this is like, okay, these guys are mental. Yeah, yes, they are. But every idea has consequences. This stuff is being embraced in our society today. You're talking about some of the transgenderism and the movements and things like that. It's being embraced because of that. Look at this guy. He identifies as a scientist. That's Bill Nye. He's not a scientist. Like, you just because you call yourself something doesn't mean that you are. Okay? Ask him scientific facts. He won't be able to give you any. That last one was a joke. Okay. 
Guys, here's the thing. These ideas have consequences. There is an unintended result that's going to come from all of this, and the enemy comes through our mind, and he attacks us. He, He tries to get you to think wrong. And if you don't take those thoughts captive, you will begin to go down a path that will lead you in a place that you don't want to be. And so what happens when these things take place is that we must do what? We must have that armor on. After you've been attacked, can you put the armor on afterwards and expect it to do you much good? No. No. Like, if you decided, I wonder if it'll hurt to jump off the roof, which the answer is yes, I'm telling you from experience, and if you want to avoid pain, don't jump off the roof. But after you jump off the roof, can you avoid the pain? No, you can't, right? It's like Paul's always telling me, like, I hit my first tee shot out of bounds most of the time. Then my second shot's usually inbounds. He's like, well, why didn't you do that the first time? Well, if I could answer that question, I might be a decent golfer, right? So I tried to step up and hit my second shot first, but that's not how it works. I told him that I identified that shot as inbounds down the middle of the fairway 15 yards off the green, but they didn't fall for that. So do these things happen in the Bible? Do we see this stuff in Scripture of where ideas creep in and have consequences? Well, let's look at this. Acts chapter 5. We're going to look at just a few of these today. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Now, this is where um, it's the, the church is very in its infancy. It's very, very young. And what's happening, and this is where they try to prove socialism and some of this other stuff, this is, which is nonsense, but all these people are coming to live together because it is a time of persecution, and it is a time where it's not favorable to be a Christian. Remember, Christian is a term only used three times in the Bible, and it was not an enduring term. And so they were selling everything that they had and coming and living communally, trying to take care of each other, okay? So, in Acts chapter 5, verse 1, it says, A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife. He sold a possession. What was that possession? Probably land. We don't know for sure. And he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife, also being aware of it, brought a certain part, and it laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, hold on. They sold a part. They sold whatever that was. And they took a part of that and brought it to the feet of the apostles, just like everybody else. Is there anything wrong with what they did? Nope. Why? It's theirs. They can do with it what they want. No different from anybody here. Nobody, there's no law that says thou shalt give in the offering, right? We choose to do it. It's your money. You do with it what you want. So he keeps back part of it. Now watch what Peter says. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? And you notice here, it doesn't say to keep some of your own money. It says to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And most of us know what happens after this. But who filled his heart? Satan did. Now think about heart. Does that mean that little thing that pumps blood? No. No. We're talking about this spiritual side, this idea. It comes with this idea, hey, You know, everybody else is doing this, but they'll never know the difference. You just keep some of that, like, because you might need it. Like, things are kind of rough. You might need it, so why don't you just keep part of that back, that way you've got it. And that's what they did. Remember Genesis 3. Did God really say? Because all they had to do was not lie here, and there would have been no judgment. Let's look at Matthew 16. Watch this. Verse 21. From that time... 
Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So he's starting to let the cat out of the bag. Boys, this is coming up pretty quick. Then Peter, right, good old Peter, he took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can I just pause there? Like, I don't know who you think you are to give advice to Jesus, but you really should think that through. Anyway. So he took him aside, he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, and you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Who did he address here? Satan. Where did that idea to Peter? Peter, is, is, he loves Jesus. Jesus, you're not going to go and you're not going to suffer. It, no, no, no. You know, we'll, we'll protect you, Jesus. We'll take care of you. It's not gonna, you're not going to die, even though he told him he's going to come back. He's like, it's not going to happen. And what does this tell us? He didn't believe him. And he refused to accept it. And we know all this happens according to the Scriptures. But here in his mind, it's like, does the Scripture really say that he's going to die and come back? Did he really say that? Peter's doing what he just said. Oh, I've I got to protect him. And Jesus addresses Satan. So who was at play here? Was it Peter or was it Satan? Yes. Because Peter didn't have to act. He could have taken that thought captive. He's like, no, no, no. Jesus said he's going to die. And he has to do this. And he says, you're not mindful of the things of God. In other words, you're not being focused here on what God has planned and what God has said and what God has to do. You're only mindful of the things that you want. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You see, this goes on and on and on. Now let me show you another example. We've talked about these before. But in Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8, there's the parable of the sower. And there are four soils, right? There's the good soil, which is what we all want to be. You've got the rocky soil, the thorny soil, the wayside soil. You've got all of these different soils. And Jesus uses this uh, parable as an analogy of which we must understand. We've got to get this. And in Luke chapter 8, he says this from... Uh, and when a great multitude had gathered, they had come to him from every city. And he spoke by a parable. He said, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on a rock, and, was soon as, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But some others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the disciples asked him, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So it's been given parables so that the disciples and the followers of Christ could understand it. But then he explains it in verse 11. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Okay? We all have that. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Now think about that. The word was planted. The enemy comes and takes that from their mind. In other words, did God really say that you must be born again? Did God really say that you can't just be a good person? Do you really think that you need, do you really think you're not right with God? 
you do good things. And that's taken unless they believe and they be saved. You see what's happening here is the enemy is coming in and attacking before they have an opportunity to believe. They've not accepted it as truth at this point. And so now the other three soils, that's after the fact. But right here is an example of the enemy coming in in a very early fashion. Guys, I've seen this for so long that I've been talking to somebody, and it's like, man, they are ready to give their hearts to the Lord. But there's always one hang-up. There's always one hang-up. And it's like, my goodness, what could be more important than this? But yet they find things. You see, we see this stuff all the time. Now, let's look at Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 16, it says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Okay, so what is the gospel of Christ? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and rose again three days later according to the Scriptures. So in this, in this gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold it back. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. What can be known about God that is manifest in us? Well, let's start with this body. This thing is amazing. I mean, not necessarily this one, but some of them, right? They're well-oiled machines. This one's just getting by on like pork rinds and coffee, to be honest with you. But, 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 but I mean, think about it. You have a, a mechanism that has the ability to heal itself. Do you know where you see that? In movies. Like, it knows what it needs to do and when it needs to do it. That's pretty amazing. It's manifest in them because God has shown it, shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. Not sometimes, it's clear. They're right there. Being understood by what? The things that are made. That's you, that's me, that's this concrete, that's the world we live on, that's the stars, it's everything. It's clearly seen by that. Even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because although they, and these are the ones that are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What thoughts? Where are these thoughts coming from? God didn't make that. Are you kidding me? We can't have anything supernatural. There's only natural. Professing to be wise, they became as fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. In other words, they made their own God in the image of themselves. We bow down at our own feet. We always think how great we are. They made them an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and creepy things. Therefore, so because of all of this, because they have done this, God gave them up to the uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So they've, they've said, all right, God, this is it. There you go. This is what you want. I'm going to let you do it. 
For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. What are we talking about here? It's homosexuality. It's a judgment from God. Hey, if this is, you don't want to worship me, that's fine. You go about your own path, but this is what it's going to lead. The more you see an uprise in that behavior, the further away from God that we are. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to the what? A debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. How did it get debased? What did God really say? Did He really create all this stuff? Did He really do this? They're being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. I could go off on a tangent here. I won't, but I will say this. You notice it says unloving. It's unloving to not tell somebody the truth. That's unloving. Embracing somebody the way they are, loving them when they become a parent is not love. You're embracing their behavior. But he says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that's coming, right? Paul's writing this, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Yeah, they are. It's called sin. As we all once were, but now we're not because we're now in the image of God because we are the new man created in him, put our faith in Christ. But it's not only them who practice such things that are deserving of death, but also do the same, or do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. You see, it's unloving to approve of those or approve of them practicing that act, whatever that may be. Embracing the lifestyle. And I'm not just talking about homosexuality. Pick anything you want. We have to stand up for truth. But all of this comes back from what? A debased mind. The enemy not just comes in and attacks you, it attacks everybody in the same method through the mind. That's the road that it comes in. But guess what? If you're not a child of the king, there is no armor of God for you to protect yourself against that. Because the thoughts that come in will simply be embraced and you won't know what to do with them, so you'll just accept them. The sad part is, is when the Christians who hear the ideas, who should know better and know what the Word says, embraces that, it's okay. It's just the way they are. I don't know about you, but I refuse to make an excuse for sin. I refuse to do it. Because I'm not loving somebody if I do. Now look at this. Let's go back. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read this again. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down the strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against one thing. That's the knowledge of God and bringing thought, every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. You see, it's all up here. It's in that thought life. It's all up here. and We have to control that. How do we do that? We bring every thought captive. But I want to show you another thing here. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Let's start in verse 10, and we're going to read a little bit past this. Now remember, everything we've talked about is in the mind, right? When somebody gives their life to Christ, they have decided that what they hear is truth, they accept it as truth, therefore they will give their life to Christ. What may have convinced them may be a supernatural moment, 
It may be a, a scriptural moment. It may be because they've seen you for so many years live differently. And they're like, man, there is something about you, your character, what makes you do this. It could be any number of things, but it all starts up here. It says, finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wild of the devil or the road in which he comes. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of the wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, not part of it, put on the whole thing. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. It starts with truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. We will go through these things um, sequentially here soon. But look at verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation. Where do you put the helmet? Where's the Salvation. Think of Luke 8. We just read it, right? You see how these things are connecting? And the sword of the Spirit. What is that? It's the Word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. You see, it's, it's this helmet of salvation. We're guarding our mind. We're taking every thought captive. But how do we do it? With the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. You see, the Bible talks about this sword as a two-edged sword. It's mentioned throughout the New Testament. In Revelation 1, verse 16, here you go. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Okay, so there's been times where you've seen drawings and pictures made of Jesus riding on this white horse with the sword Coming out of his mouth, that's not what he's talking about. What is the sword of the Spirit? It is the Word. The sharp, two-edged sword. This is weird, there's no question about it. But it's his Word that is going forth. Now this is weird, but the phrase two-edged comes from the Greek word distomos. D-I-S-T-O-M-O-S. And it's unquestionably, it's one of the oddest words that's used in the New Testament because it is compounded of two words, which the first one is di, which means two, and stomos, which means mouth. It's weird. When you put these two words and compound them together, it describes something that is two-mouthed. It's weird, I know, no doubt about it. But what John is saying here in Revelation is that the sword has two mouths. The mouth of God and the mouth of the one who speaks it. You see, when you, when you say the word of God, when you get up and you have something coming against you and you stand on the word of God and you say that no weapon formed against me will prosper, you're taking the spoken word of God that has been written down on our behalf and now we're speaking it as truth. We have to do that kind of stuff. You could read it like this. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-mouthed sword. In Revelation 2.12, look at this. And the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Well, who's talking here? It's Jesus, right? Could say two-mouthed sword. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of hearts. So, so here we go. We've got distomos. You've got this word here, makira, for sword. 
used in Ephesians 6.17. Why is the word of God referred repeatedly as a two-edged sword, or even more correctly, as a two-mouth sword? Well, you have to keep in mind what Paul's talking about. In their time, they had these big gladius swords that were big and heavy, and they were sharp on one side and dull on another. And they swing it with the sharp side, and, and, and it would kill somebody. they swing it with the dull side, and it would hurt somebody. probably wouldn't kill them. But this makira was sharp on both sides. And it would wreak havoc into anything that it was put into. And when used correctly, it would leave the enemy dead on the ground. There was no hope. You might survive something else, but there was no coming back. Because when they would put this in, it came out and it would bring stuff with it. It's disgusting. So it's being spoken once by God, once by us. And when we speak it, it does something. Now let's look at Hebrews 4.12 again. For the word of God is living, is powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay, but what is it piercing? Soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now here's the exciting part. Look at this. Where's the battlefield? Where have we established this? It's in our mind. And we put on that helmet of salvation. But We have the sword of the spirit with us. The word will divide your soul, which is your mind, will, emotion, from your spirit. It divides your thoughts from God's thoughts. It divides the enemy's lies from God's promises. And when you speak the word, you're doing battle with your mind. Look what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. When the enemy says, hey, why don't you just do this? And he quotes him scriptures. He said, no. He uses the word to combat the enemy. What do we do? Nothing. We do nothing. Your mind wants to believe the lies. We gravitate towards negativity, but your spirit yearns for the things of God. We've got to be diligent to do the Word. You see, it's the thoughts and the intents of the heart the Word can discern. Your motives can not be pure, can be pure, but it all comes back to the Word. It's that sword of the Spirit that will separate those different thoughts from the thoughts of God. But it's all right here. So what does that mean? If we don't know the Word, then we cannot discern good from bad. We can discern maybe some good. All lies are not just straight out lies. They're usually mixed with some truth. And this is the discernment factor. We have got to put on the helmet of salvation. We have to guard our minds. We have to take every thought captive. We have to refuse to give in to the lies of the enemy. Those lies come in many forms. Some of them are serious some of them are not so serious. But when we become complacent in our walk with God, that is because the enemy says, oh, you're busy, you'll get to that tomorrow. It's okay. Oh, you don't need to read your Bible today. That's okay. You got other things going on. God understands. You don't need to pray today. Whatever happened to the time where we put God first in all things and we did things His way? When it says to put on the armor of God, do you think that's something we need to be doing? I would think so. But we don't. We don't do it. We walk around, and we're just waiting on something to happen. And we're like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what to do in this situation. Well, I do. We stick with the Word. When the Word says, by His stripes we are healed, it's either true or it's not. There is no in-between. Are we going to stand on that Word or are we not? We should stand on that Word. If He says that He'll meet all of our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus, are we going to stand on that Word or are we not? I mean... 
Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That means we're having trouble in the world. He, it being the enemy, are, are the, is the one in us greater? Like, is this just a temporary thing? Can we not overcome this? Yes, we can overcome this. Well, we've got to know the word. And when we don't, we cannot discern the truth. 